Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles people who are passionate about what they do for a living, what organization they belong to, or the community they are a part of. Here is your host, Dave Cunningham. Thank you, Steve. Hello there and welcome. Regardless of age, most adults have at least thought about writing a will or recruiting someone to act as a power of attorney or executor. However, less than half of Canadians have actually done something about it. Most would agree a will is an important document designed to protect one's legacy. Others would argue that having a power of attorney in place is even more crucial. There are many questions on these topics needing answers, and in this episode, we thought we'd try to address some. To help us do that, I've invited Wally Viner to the podcast. Before he retired, Wally practiced law in Kingston for over 50 years, prepared thousands of wills, and continues to be passionate about providing information to help people work their way through the process. Here is our conversation with Wally Viner. Wally, welcome to the program. Thank you, David. Nice to be here. Now, for those people who are listening from outside the Kingston area, you are very well known here. You've always been a big supporter of the city. You've worked with numerous charitable organizations in the area. And even after 50 years in your law practice, you continue to contribute time and energy to at least one passion, the one we are going to focus on here, and that's helping people protect their legacy. So that involves wills, powers of attorney, executors, that sort of thing. So where did interest in this particular area come from for you? Well, frankly, um, being a practicing solicitor for so many years and doing wills and power of attorneys, I have an appreciation of the fear and ignorance that people have when it comes to doing a will. Often they have the fear that if they do a will, they're going to die once they sign it. And the fear and ignorance is that they don't know where to even start. And so after I finished my excitement of being a practicing lawyer, I felt I was not brain dead. I still had something to give to the public. And I decided I would try to <clears throat> educate as many Kingstonians and Charians as I could on the necessity of a will of power attorney and that it isn't that hard. It's just a matter of making that commitment and when you look into it. And quite honestly, usually within half an hour, people leave my consultation and they're happy to go see their lawyer. They're better prepared. The lawyers are happier because they're not starting from scratch. And it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Now, in the context of this particular podcast, um, I have mentioned before on this show that I used to work as a financial planner, and I am not a financial planner anymore, and you are not a formal practicing attorney anymore, so we are not here to advise. We are here to pass along information so that people are better prepared when they walk in to see their lawyer or their financial planner or their accountant. So is Wills the place to start in our chat here? Well, um, most people would say that's the place to start. It's your most important document. And I emphasize the word your most important document. Because to me, the will is not your most important document. Because at that time, you're dead. You should have hopefully prepared what you want done with your estate. 
but your most important document while you are alive is your power of attorney. And unfortunately, the power of attorney is almost the, uh, the little sister that's uh, the kid's sister that's never thought of very often. Okay. But you need your power of attorneys perhaps for 10 years or 20 years. So when you're dead, you don't care so much what happens to your estate. You're not going to be affected by it. Your children, your spouse, the community may be affected by it. But for you yourself, you want protection. So there's a legal assumption that every person is mentally capable of deciding, <clears throat> deciding who should look after their financial matters if they are not capable of doing so. And also who should be the one to look after their personal care. So the law starts off with saying, yes, you have the capacity. And what's interesting, the law does not ask for capacity when you marry or have children. It's automatically a given. But for power of attorneys and for wills, there is a question of capacity. What the law does not do, the law does not protect you in the decision that you made or who you appoint. So hopefully you go into this with some basic of knowing who you're going to appoint. It could be your spouse, it could be your children, it could be a friend. And what you want is you want to appoint someone who is trustworthy, possibly younger than you are, in good health, a willingness to act in that capacity with experience and competency and impartiality. So we start off, and the power of attorney document itself is like a page and a half. Wills run 12 pages with all sorts of things. For some reason, the government thinks that you fill in the blanks at a page and a half, and you covered the next 10 years. And that is really a falsehood and very disappointing. The level that you need for mental capacity to make a power of attorney, what they call the continuing power of attorney, is you have to know what property you have and an approximate value. You have to be aware of the people who depend upon you financially. You have to know that you're giving authority to somebody else and that person has to eventually account to you or to your estate. You can give that continuing power attorney to as many people as you want which I don't advise, but also you can also revoke it as long as you have the capacity. So the fact that in 2018, I gave a power attorney to somebody and now it's 2021 and I'm not happy with that person. If I, as long as I have the mental capacity, I can change that power of attorney. And you also have to be aware that perhaps your attorney might misuse their authority. So there are three power of attorneys the power of attorney for continuing care or for personal care, the power of attorney that you want to continue. And when you say continue, that means it continues even when you lose your capacity. And then there's a general power of attorney. <clears throat> if I'm going to Florida and I want you to sell my house, I can give you a power of attorney that sets out the restrictions and conditions of you entertaining. So that's limited. It's for a specific purpose. 
the power attorney for personal care covers health, medical treatment, diet, housing, hygiene, and safety. So hopefully you're appointing someone that you really trust and have faith in. Now, the important thing to realize that that person that you appoint is not the caregiver. That person is looking after your matters, making decisions for you, but isn't the one necessarily being up eight hours a night with you and taking you to the toilet. Now, in often cases, it is that same person. It's a daughter or son, and they are looking after you, and, and they're doing the best they can because they can't afford 24-hour care. But there is a distinction between being appointed and carrying out the duties. For that, there seems to be less capacity needed to appoint somebody for personal care. You have to know that the person has a genuine interest in you. And you have to appreciate that that person may need to make decisions on your behalf. So there's less demand on your knowledge. You really have to feel that that person loves me, will care for me, and has the ability to do that. One thing that I've uh, come across in the past, and that's when you are looking at appointing a power of attorney. And I would think that it would be important to appoint someone who lives near you, as opposed to appointing a son who lives in Alberta and you live in Ontario. Well, again, that's certainly true if you're talking about executors. Why I say it is less true in power of attorney is because that power of attorney doesn't have to be there. No. They have to make decisions on your behalf. Okay, now it's better if they live close by and they can see your needs and they can see the, uh, the sliding of your abilities and can make those assessments quickly. But yes, better in all cases to have somebody nearby, but not as absolute as in an executorship. Do you suggest or have you in the past seen that Powers of attorney would be both powers of attorney for financial as well as health and welfare? Or do you think it's better to have two different people? Well, the important thing is actually those people have to work together. Because if I have a power of attorney for personal care, I can't do anything unless I know I have the money. Mm -hmm. That comes from the guy who has, or the woman who has a power of attorney for finances. So it is important that they at least get along and can communicate. It makes life a lot easier if it's one and the same person. But sometimes parents like to have sort of uh, a second hand, a second eye over what goes on and they don't want to give all the authority. And some parents think they should divide that responsibility. And so they appoint uh, one for one and one for the other. How do you decide as a power of attorney, that it's time to invoke the power of attorney? That's the million-dollar question. Mm -hmm. Um, You wish or you hope that your parent recognizes that they are losing the ability to look after and make their own decisions and will willingly say, hey, Mary, um, come on down to the bank or... Come, come help me, I, I need a cleaner in the house once a week. But quite often we are stubborn at our ages and uh, we think we can do everything forever. And 
it is possible to uh, seek um, professional people to come in and make an assessment of your capacity. Now that only works if the parent is allowing that assessment to take over. Mm. You can stonewall the issue and say, nobody's coming in here to talk to me and tell me A, B, and C, or I'm not going to answer those questions to a complete stranger. And so it is a problem. It is no easy answer until it's too late when they can't make capacity. But hopefully by that time, they at least have the power of attorney executed. Mm -hmm. So when that trigger is, is a big, important question. Yeah. Now, when you're talking about powers of attorney, uh, as we said at the outset of this discussion, wills are part of this conference you would have with a lawyer when you're getting yourself straightened out for end-of-life issues. Now, one of the discussions that I can remember having in the past was this business of going to a, um, a store and buying a will kit and doing a will myself. And I'd just like to get your perspective as a fellow who has written up 3,500 wills, the advisability of doing it on your own. Oh, I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm biased for a couple of years. I'm biased on those wills that you can get at, at the store. I'm also biased a little bit on the internet wills. And there are more and more companies offering internet wills. Some of them are better than others. But what I find, and, and this is even as a practitioner, you get the first answer. My executors will be Bob and Jane. That's fine. The paper document doesn't say, have they talked to one another in 15 years? Are they in the same province? Is one of them, um, you know, in Europe, on, on the backpacking through the, through the country and all this for the next three years. So, you know, do they like each other and do they communicate? Do they share the same beliefs? I mean, even kids within the same family don't have this, don't have to share the same beliefs in life and death, in cremation, in, in burial. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the issue I have with with the paper documents and some of the internet ones as they don't dig. That's that's where an individual uh, such as I would, would dig. I would ask the second and third and maybe the fourth question. And then we find out, geez, that doesn't work at all. All right. Also, some people point both of them, uh, my son and daughter. Um, if that's all they say, then son and daughter have to make the same decisions. They have to be uniform. And if they aren't, then there's a stalemate, or one sues the other, mm -hmm. get into all sorts of things. Now, there are clauses that you can put in this jointly and severally. In other words, we can make them together, or one of them can make. But that just is asking for a problem, because one of them says, well, I can make this decision by myself when we're doing cremation. And the other child says, there's no way you're going to do cremation. And then, again, you have a stalemate. So if you're going to name two people, I think it's wise to name a third who might break the tie. When you are talking about the business of making up a will, how young is too young or how old is too old to get one done up? <clears throat> well, you're never too young. Um, but let me even hit that one with a proper attorney. 
we have family members now going to university. They're going out of province. They're going out of country. They're 18 years old. They are of age. They get ill. They get into an accident. There is nobody to make decisions on their behalf. Okay. But they are the ones from 18, as far as I'm concerned. They should have a power attorney so that they are in an accident. There is hospitalization. Mom and dad can fly down, pick up the phone, <clears throat> so then a copy of the power attorney and say, I can help make decisions. Otherwise, the child is in a coma, lying there, and there's nobody to give instructions. So as far as power attorneys, I think we don't know when we're going to have an accident. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when we're going to lose capacity. It doesn't hurt to have a power attorney. And you can change them as often as you want. Mm -hmm. so it doesn't hurt. As far as a will, I say certainly upon marriage and certainly upon having children. And what I have found is after the first child, people run in and they do get a will. And they make sure that that child is protected. <clears throat> but quite often, when the second and third child comes around, they forget to maybe amend the will because you've named a child. You didn't say all my children. So there are a few things like that that need constant attention. When you are talking about getting detail into a will, I know one of the lines that I can remember hearing was uh, older parents would say, my kids are never going to get into an argument over the money when we pass away. And in my experience, I found that that's not necessarily the case. In terms of detail uh, inside of a will, is it simple enough or good enough to say, just take all the stuff divided by three kids or however many kids you have or uh, how often would people sit down and say, well, I want this to go to that person and this to go to that person? I'm just curious to know in your experience, what kind of detail has been included in wills? Okay. Well, first of all, I, I like your myth uh, or your statement, uh, my kids will never fight. That is probably one of the greatest myths around because you don't have to be fighting over money. There was a recent case, actually, of a um, sister suing her brother because the father had made a ring for the mother out of a bolt. The bolt, you can buy a Canadian tire for probably eight cents, but he hammered it or something, and the daughter wanted that item. It was emotional. She went to court over a bolt. So when you say divide everything amongst my children, there are some children that will have some preferences. A, mom always told me I was going to get that cabinet. B, I love that toy. I, I played with it every day and it's in the in wherever it is. And I thought I was getting it. And the executive says, no, no, we're we're either going to sell everything or we're going to divide it by money. So I do recommend that there may be items that the parents may want to set out in a memorandum indicating what items and describe it properly. Just don't say my rings, because you could have eight rings. So it's my diamond ring or my ruby ring or whatever it is. Um, goes to A, B, and C and divide things up. 
When it comes to moving to executors, do you suggest that it makes sense to have the person who has the power of attorney be named the executor, or should that be somebody different? It can easily be someone different. It can be the same person. Again, I hope the grantor has a lot of trust because if it's the same person, they will never question the money they spent under the power of attorney, presumably. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that another sibling can say, hey, mom had 200000 in the bank, and how come she's dying with 35000 Okay. So he's yeah. going to say, well, I had a power of attorney, and I, I spent all this money, and hopefully they have receipts and record keeping. That's one of the also um, major factors that people don't do in power of attorneys. They don't record enough. They don't keep records. It's not your money. It's their money, the person you're looking after, and you are obligated to carry out that person's wishes as well as look after them adequately. What's the role of an executor? It depends where you look for that. I have seen books on executorships or even on the internet. Well, I'll give you 87, 87 steps for an executor. I've seen one that says eight steps for an executor. And I've seen one that says 147. So the eight steps is one to eight, but within each step is probably 10 things that they have to do. So it isn't eight steps, all right? It's 80 or it's so much more. The job of the executor is to safeguard the assets immediately of the deceased. So if there's a house, they should probably change the locks. They should make sure there's insurance. They have to make sure where the bank accounts are. They have to know who the creditors are. And they have a a lot of things to do and the government makes it more and more difficult. The thing I would advise is that just because you've been named an executor and just because you agreed to that 10 years before, doesn't mean you have to accept that obligation. The executor can say, oh my God, I think the estate is insolvent or bankrupt. It has now so many assets that when I said yes, all he had was his fishing rod. And now he has apartment buildings and, and machinery and all sorts of things. So he can renounce. Now that leaves the estate, maybe if there was only one executor named and a bit of a bind, and then some other family member will have to apply to the court. And that's the other issue, and I'm glad you sort of mentioned that, because even the power of attorneys, if you don't name a power of attorney and you need help, then your relatives who want to help, there can be competing relatives who want to help, but they have to go to the court. So you have a whole process of trying to get before a judge. The judge will not just say yes or no, they look into it, they look into your abilities, and they want a plan. And you have to set out a plan to look after that person. And then the government, as they should, says, okay, we appointed you to look after this person, but we're gonna check up on you. We're gonna make sure that you're following the plan and you have to change it. You have to come back and change it. So you're talking about time, you're talking about money, and you're talking about the person lying there and not being cared for 
for having their assets cared for just because you didn't take the time to name somebody a power of attorney. Now let's go to the other extreme here. And what happens if somebody who dies and there is no power of attorney and there is no will? Now the government has a uh, legislation that, to deal with that if you were a couple or if you were a family and let's say the, the husband or the father did pass away and there is no will and there is no power of attorney named. What tends to happen there? Well, if you die without a will, if you have a spouse, and in this province, the word spouse is very specific, uh, and I don't want to get into family law, but I will say that if your partner is living with you common law, he or she have less rights. If you are married and you die without a will, there is called a preferential share that goes to the spouse. And if there are children, so it, it was recently changed, it's now $350,000. That goes first, and then the balance is divided by depending on the number of children. The wife gets some, the children get some. Uh, but again, you you may not want your children to get it at eighteen, whatever they they're getting. Mm-hmm. You may have, if you thought about it, you may have said, "My kids don't get anything until they're twenty-five because they're so irresponsible." I can see that right now, and they're growing up. But you don't have a choice if you die, if you die without a will. Mm-hmm. Law will say the kids get it at 18. You may not want your spouse even to get 350000 Now, there are other conditions that I won't go into, but I will say this for your listeners. There are considerable changes to the Divorce Act and to the Children's Act coming out in 2021. Many of them are already out. So whatever will you already have, it wouldn't hurt to get it reviewed and make sure it has, if you die after March, 2021, to make sure it will be what you want it to be. And that's something we haven't really emphasized here too, is that uh, whether it's uh, the field of accounting or financial planning or insurance or law, is that regulations change quite frequently. And most people don't tend to look at those obscure pages of a newspaper or magazine to see what those changes are. And like you said, the best thing to do would be to pay a visit to your professional and have that individual sit down and make sure that you are abiding by the current regs. David, the amazing thing that I have found since I retired, I still get calls from old clients. And they haven't changed the world since 1980 or 1987. They just felt I had a will. And no one considers their own changes or the changes of the people that they love. And they don't certainly think very much about government. They think I have a will. And talking about executors, um, I love the one with Doug Ford, of course who is the executor of his brother's estate. Um, and he has been sued by his sister-in-law for $16.5 million. So there is some liability when you take on an executorship. And 
I was thinking just the other night, I can imagine the Rogers family, the telecommunication giants, how many of those are now running to their lawyer, changing their will as to who their executor or their attorneys are, because things dramatically change in that family. And that's the amazing thing, too, is that there's so much to think about. And this is an area that's really important if you're concerned about if you do have assets or I guess the one classic in the financial planning world is, OK, so mom and dad bought a cottage in the Muskokas in 1953 and they paid 50 grand for it. And now it's worth 500,000. And so when it passes down, then how do we deal with that and the capital gains tax, for instance, that we have to pay if we want to keep that particular cottage in the family going forward. So all of this stuff has to be dealt with in some way, shape, or form if that's the goal of the person who owns it now. And the problem with cottages is we all have fond memories of wonderful times growing up there, the parents with the children, the children with the parents, and the parents want to keep the cottage in the family name. And as you say, 20, 30 years, and I would say the last six months, if you want somebody in Muskoka, <laughs> you become a multimillionaire without even touching a finger. So I think parents really should have a discussion with the children. Do you want the cottage? Because there are so many tax implications. And if you just say, cottage to my three kids, because you remember when they were 12 and 13, you forget now they're 35 and they each have three kids or two kids each. So you're now not talking about three, you're talking about maybe eight, maybe even 12 different kids and, and grandchildren who may have an interest in going up there every weekend, once a month, whatever the situation is. So you have who maintains that during the year. I live in Alberta, I only come up for one weekend I give you that weekend. I, I like to walk in. And by the way, I hate that shag rug. I now want interior plumbing. The roof needs fixing. The boat doesn't work. I, you had it all week. Why didn't you fix the boat? Who shares all these things? Yeah. And uh, it becomes, it can become a nightmare. And this sentimental, the nicest thing you have just um, becomes a family disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And the message here with all of this is, is take the time and prepare yourself and uh, talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about yes, so that you are prepared. Talk to your family. Yeah. Find what they want. You know, you think they may want it and then maybe somebody may say, just, dad, give me my hundred thousand and yep. let me get it here. <laughs> exactly. Okay, sir, I thank you very much for your time today. All of this very useful information. I appreciate it. I'm glad you asked. I hope somebody uh, gets a light on and reviews their will. And I'll leave you with one last story, and that's the one I love, because we don't take time to review. We don't have time to review. We're all so busy. So Robert Kennedy, who was running for president and got assassinated, he, of course, had a will. He was attorney general. He had, what, 170,000 lawyers under him. But before him, his executor got assassinated. President John Kennedy, and he never changed his will. He never appointed somebody else. Now, there'll be a slew of people wanting to be his executor, so he wasn't without family members. But, you know, even 
the top lawyer in the United States, he didn't have the common sense to review a will. <laughs> I will leave you today and thank you. Thanks very much, Wally. Okay, thank you, David. Our thanks again to our guest, Wally Viner. And if you'd like more information on the topic from him, his website is www.walterviner.com. That's www.walterviner.com. This episode was recorded in early November 2021 using Zoom. The theme music for the podcast is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian Podcast at gmail.com. For details on upcoming guests, follow us on Facebook. The Kingstonian Podcast is hosted by Dave Cunningham and produced in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm.